Now he moves here in verse 7 to go into some detail about the trials we're going to have down here. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Now, he uses a very apt illustration. And he uses now a very wonderful word, precious. Now, that is a woman's word, by the way. I know a dear lady, and she's a dear saint of God, and she listens to this program, and she's listening right now, and she'll know I'm talking about her too, but that's all right. I love her in the Lord. She's a wonderful saint of God, and she's up now in her 70s. But everything to her is precious. She told me I'm precious. He told me that my program is precious. He told me that something I said was precious. And she said that something that someone gave her was precious, and that she had a precious time visiting some friends, and they had a very precious meal. Everything is precious. It's a little overworked word today, but it's a good word. And you know who uses it here in this epistle? It's Simon Peter, that great big rugged fisherman. He talks about that the trial of our faith is precious. And he uses the word precious here seven times. We'll see it as we come to it. And he says it's more precious than gold that perish it. Now, gold perish it. But how do you try gold? Well, listen to him. Then of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now you see that he says the trial that you're going through is for a purpose. It has a very present purpose. God today is doing for you what they do with gold. Now, when they go and mine gold, what do they do with it? They bring it to the smelter, and they put it in a red-hot furnace to destroy the gold. No, purify. You see, when they melt it, the dross is drawn off, and you get pure gold. He's using a very apt illustration because he's going to Say here, we've been redeemed not with silver and gold, but something more precious, the blood of Christ. Now, our testing today that God gives to us, he puts us in the furnace, not to destroy us, not to hurt us or harm us. Well, he wants pure gold, and that's the way that he's going to get it. And friends, that is what develops Christian character. I don't care what you say, it is at a time like that, when the tests come, that precious gold appears and the dross is drawn off. And that's God's method. That's God's school. And that's left out of the programs today. If you just get a hold of some gimmick, and everybody's teaching it right now. I listened to a very wonderful preacher on the radio and I love him. He's a personal friend of mine, and I think he's a great preacher. But he's gone into this, that, boy, if you just get with it, and that simply means, by the way, that you've got to become sufficient within yourself, and you've got to become adequate, and you must recognize these things. 
My friend, the thing you recognize, you're nothing, that you're not adequate, you're not sufficient, you never will be. The only thing is that you come as a sinner to Christ, then he saves you. Then, my friends, he wants to live his life through you. And that's the only thing, and the only way he can do it for us is that he gives us trials and troubles. Now, there are a great many shortcuts today. The only thing is the shortcuts don't lead to anything but a dead-end street. And the only thing that will bring us into a growth and maturation is the fact that we'll have trials. And then, at the time of the appearing of Christ, he says here, the appearing of Jesus Christ, you will thank God for your trials. And I'm of the opinion that many of us are going to wish we had more trials when we get in his presence. I think that we're going to see the value of it. Just think of the trials that Paul went through. And this man, Simon Peter, he's going to be crucified. And he was crucified, of course, from where we are today. But when he wrote this, crucifixion was ahead of him. And he says the trials are going to really bring out the gold. And when you appear in his presence, that's the thing that you're to look forward to. Now he says something very precious here. Whom having not seen, ye love in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now, here's a verse that ought to mean a great deal to us. You see, Simon Peter, he had seen the Lord Jesus Christ personally. He'd been with him for three years and failed so miserably during that period. And then he came there to the Sea of Galilee, and that breakfast that morning, the Lord Jesus prepared for them after his resurrection. And Simon Peter had failed him so miserably, and I guess he was waiting for it. Maybe the Lord Jesus said, Simon Peter, I can't trust you. Why in the world did you betray me? And I want to tell you, I'm going to have to put you on the sidelines. You failed me. And he didn't say that. He said, Simon Peter, do you love me? And this man, who'd been a braggadocio before, he's not bragging now. He finally just cried out, you know, Lord Jesus, that I love you. But you know what a failure I am too. But I love you. And the Lord Jesus said, I'm going to let you feed the sheep. And he preached the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Do you love me? And now he says to you and me, whom having not seen ye love. The Holy Spirit is the one that can make him real to you today. Now, friends, this is the secret of life. And that's the reason that I can't conduct any of these conferences, because all I'd have to do is get up and say, all that he's asking you to do is love him. His question is, do you love me? Then we'd all go home, and we wouldn't have much of a conference. Now, may I say to you, that's exactly what he's saying here, whom having not seen ye love. And that's the important thing. Do you love him? May I be very personal today? And I sure hope my wife's not listening. She doesn't like for me to tell this. I met her in Cleburne, Texas. She was a school teacher there. She's a very striking brunette and very popular. And when I met her, 
at a dinner party that a member of my church arranged. I'll be honest with you, I didn't want to go that night. And I found out later she didn't want to. She had to break a date. I'd broken a date, but we wanted to please these people. These people were in my church, and she was a member of the Baptist church. And she attended the Presbyterian church with some fella. And I fell in love with her, you know. One of my members, vice president of one of the banks there, a deacon in my church, he said, you really going to have strong competition. I found out that there was strong competition. One man owned a wholesale grocery company, and he drove a great big car. I don't know whether it was a Cadillac or not. It looked like it. And I drove a miserable little Chevrolet that wasn't brand new even. And I only made $150 a month then. And then I found out there's another fellow from Fort Worth that he was the superintendent of the telephone company that had charge of West Texas for the telephone company. And he made a big salary, and he's the one who took her to a liberal Presbyterian church every now and then. She actually, being a member of the Baptist church, been immersed, all of that, she thought she was saved, that she was a Christian. And she was having a good time. And I want to tell you, friends, I had competition. What did I have to offer? And so I got in quick as I could. I told her I loved her, and she says it wasn't the second date, but the second week. I asked her to marry me, and I want to tell you, she didn't give me an answer right away. One of her questions was, and I didn't know it at the time, she had a brother there that was a coach at the high school, and he was a math teacher, and he was her big brother, and she went and talked with him about it. And she wondered whether she could be a pastor's wife, because she'd been brought up in a little town where the pastor's wife sang in the choir, played the piano, ran the missionary society, and put on all the meals. In fact, they just work those poor women to death. I feel sorry for a lot of these pastor's wives today in these small churches. And she just didn't know whether she could be a pastor's wife or not. And I didn't know all this was going on, and I was sweating it out because I had to preach Sunday night, and there I'm up preaching my heart out in the Presbyterian church, and she's over at the Baptist church with this other fellow. Well, I want to say to you, I moved in, and so I had to offer something, and I told her about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for us and how he died upon the cross for us for love, and he wanted us to love him. And do you know that's the first time that she ever heard that? And when she came to the Bible class, I had a Bible class for people in the town. They came from every church. In that little town, we had about 300. And believe me, that little town began to watch how the Presbyterian preacher that had just come to town, and they thought I'd been jilted by some girl back in Tennessee, which was not true. But that word got around, and they wondered how I was going to come out with this girl, with these other fellas, you know. Well, I tell you, I told her about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I gave her the book of Ruth, because her name is Ruth, and told about how this man fell in love with her and how Christ today loves us and saves us because he loved us so much he died for us on a cross. And she not only got saved, but she became my wife, by the way. That's all I had to offer $150 a month, that wasn't much, even in those days, because a dollar was a dollar then. But may I say, 
That makes this verse so wonderful to me today. Whom having not seen, ye love. You love him today? Well, may I say, if you don't love him, no course in the world is going to help you. And he's not going to tell you to feed sheep or to do anything else. In whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Is that such a heart beating fast today? Are you really in love with him? Or do you just have a dead religion today where it's quite meaningless? My friend, oh, how wonderful, how wonderful this verse is here. And Simon Peter loved him, and Paul loved him, and all of those that have ever served him, they love him. I hope you love him today, and if you do, that'll solve a lot of your problems. Say, it'll even help you with your wife. Because she reminded me that the way I came on, I came on strong. She was a school teacher. And I tried to call her all that weekend. She's out of town. So Monday morning, I went to Florist and sent her a dozen American Beauty roses. And when she got home from school, I arranged to call her right after that to ask for a date to get this fella out of the way as quickly as I could. And she was willing, after all, I don't think he'd sent a dozen American Beauty roses. And then I told her then, that was the second week, that I loved her. And I wanted to marry her, and I told her about how Christ loved us. My friend, I think it'd even help you with your wife. And when she reminded me of this, I've had a lot of time at home during the period that I had hepatitis. I had a long time at home, and we'd just sit out on the patio and talk, and We talked about those early days, and I went back to that day, and she said, do you remember doing this? And you know I'd forgotten all about it. And the thing I did, I went out, and I got her a dozen American Beauty Roses again. And I told her, I says, well, after 37 years, I think it's time I'm sending you another dozen American Beauty Roses. And I said, in 37 more years, you're going to get them again. But I don't think it'll be in this life. But friends, isn't it wonderful that the love of Christ draws our hearts together, draws believers together. It'll help you in your home. It'll help you in your church. It'll help you everywhere if you love him. That's the thing that's important. And it'll bring rejoicing to your heart. Are you a rejoicing Christian today? Just think, I got an inheritance that's coming up someday. I don't have much down here. I sure got one over there. Oh, I tell you, I'm a child of the King. I'm a child of the King. How wonderful it is to be a child of the King. And got an inheritance that's coming someday. Now, let me move on here. Verse 9. Got bogged down, you can see. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, salvation, you see, was a subject, actually a prophecy. Prophets and apostles bore witness, and in the mouth of many witnesses, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. All of this, and he's writing now to the diaspora. The salvation had been predicted, you see, by the prophets of old. Now, friends, we are coming 
to this section in First Peter. It actually begins at verse 10, goes through the remainder of chapter 1, verse 25, suffering and the Scriptures. What the Word of God mean to people and what it can do in time of trial. It is God's method to use His Word now for those that are His own as they face life down here. Now, I want to read verse 10 to get the connection, and then on through verse 11. And I'm reading now, 1 Peter 1, verse 10, "...of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them did signify when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now, we are told specifically here that the prophets in the Old Testament wrote by the Spirit of Christ. That is the way they wrote. This is one of the many statements you have in the Word of God that the Old Testament is inspired of God. Now, these men wrote by the Spirit of Christ. And there were some things that they did not quite grasp. And they searched, we're told here, for it very diligently, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them, when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now, as we mentioned last time, you have many places in the Old Testament that speak of the sufferings of Christ. And you have other places where it speaks of the sovereignty of Christ, of the kingdom. Grace and glory are combined and it was difficult for them to understand it. They wrote, as Isaiah did in the 53rd chapter, there is the sufferings of Christ. Then in the 11th chapter, he sees the Messiah coming in power and glory to the earth to establish his kingdom. And all the prophets saw that. And it caused them a bit of searching to discover how both could be true. Now, you and I today live between the sufferings of Christ, that's in the past, and the glory is yet in the future, so that we're really in a unique position. Now, those of you that have my notes, you have a chart that we have drawn there that we trust make it much clearer. I can use, I think, an illustration, a very homely illustration, that I think might clarify this for you. Here in Pasadena, we have as a backdrop for this wonderful area here, that which is known as the Sierra Madre Mountains. And right back of where I live, and I say right back, it's quite a few miles back, is Mount Wilson. In fact, if you take the road and wind your way up there, it's 25 miles but I would think as the crow flies, it'd be about five miles as you look up there. And many a morning since 1940, I've gone out 
looked up at those mountains. Now, Mount Wilson is approximately 6,000 feet high. Back of it, and when you get in a certain position, you see another mountain, Mount Waterman. And it looks like it's the same height, but it actually is above 8,000 feet. Now, when you stand down here in this valley, and they look like they're right together. But I've been up there to Mount Wilson, and I've driven through those mountains, and frankly, they're not together. There is a tremendous valley between that is between 25 and 35 miles, if not 50 miles, from one mountain to the other. And I'm sure that it would be 50 miles if you went from the top of one and went down and then up the other one. Now, you have that distance. They look like they're right together. Now, the prophets looked down in the future. They saw two mountain peaks. They saw the suffering of Christ. They saw the glory that was coming. is right together. It looked like it was together. And it caused them to search and to wonder how both could be true. And I'm of the opinion that there were skeptics and higher critics in that day that said, now look, this looks like a conflict in Scripture. It's a contradiction. You can't have it both ways. Either it comes suffering or it comes to rain. Which is it? Well, the fact of the matter is both are true. And you and I live in this valley today between, and that's the church age from the suffering of Christ till the time he comes again, you see. You have this tremendous valley that is between. Now, this is the message that the prophets give, and now the apostles are saying the same thing. They speak of his sufferings. They speak of the glory. And the Scripture says that in the mouth of two witnesses, a matter is established. And so we again are brought back to the Word of God. So this section here begins with the Word of God. When we get to the end of this section, we'll be still talking about the Word of God. But in between here now, we're going to see what the child of God should do, how he should live down here where we are today. In other words, the important thing that we have here, as one commentator has put it, the challenge is to live differently here. Now, because of this salvation that you and I enjoy, why, he goes on to say in verse 12 now of chapter 1, "...unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you." with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Now, the apostles are saying, we're preaching the same thing that the prophets did. The only thing is, they didn't make the distinction. The apostles were in a unique position. They could make that distinction. And you and I live even farther along than the apostles did. And we can see there's a big wide gap between Two tremendous mountain peak experiences, episodes in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, we can see that it's a wide gap between both of those. 
Now we are told here again that this is something that the angels desire to look into. Did you know, friends, that the angels, the God's created intelligences, are just standing up yonder around looking at you and me and wondering why we don't get busy and give out this message today? They desire themselves. They'd love to come to make an announcement. Now, I'm going to repeat something that I've said before, and believe me, I've had a lot of letters on this of people who have been very gracious in the way they've written, but they say they believe in angel ministry today, and some have gone so far as to say they've seen an angel. I haven't. You've certainly had a privilege that I haven't had. I do not believe that angel ministries for today, they would like to come down as Gabriel did. Gabriel came and made the announcement, a marvelous announcement of the fact that Jesus was going to be born. And he told Zacharias about the fact that he was going to have a son named John the Baptist. And I'm sure Gabriel would love to come down today and take this radio broadcast and say, move over, McGee. You're not putting into it all that you should put into it. This thing is lots more wonderful than you're making it. And he'd like to come down, which you know God won't let him. He says, I've got to use that poor vessel down there, McGee. And that means it looks like the Lord's bad all, but he's really not because Today, he's using human instruments because we're not living in the day of the ministry of angels. We're living in the day of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And friends, if you're indwelt by the Spirit of God, and you are, if you're a child of God, we're told, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. So that if you are Christ, you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. Now, do you think that an angel could do something for you that the Spirit of God could not do? No. We're living in the day of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the day of grace, when the Spirit of God, indwelling believers, is today taking the things of Christ and showing them unto us. Now, what are we to do because of that? Because the Word of God is here to comfort us and to help us because it reveals Jesus Christ. He said that the Spirit would take the things of Christ and show them unto us. Now, what are we to do today? Verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, that is an expression they understood in that day. It's an idiom, and I'd like to bring it down to good old Americana today. And I think that it would mean get with it. That would be the expression. Or I think that another expression that's being used today, another common colloquialism of the present moment is, we need to be turned on by the Word of God. A great many folk today talk about getting turned on. They take drugs and they talk about sex and all that. They get turned on. My friend... What the child of God needs today is to be turned on by the Word of God. And now he says here, gird up the loins of your mind. Get with it, boy. Get with it, girl. Now he says, be sober. And that, my friend, says that 
You won't need drugs and you won't need alcohol. You're to be sober and let the Word of God turn you on and hope to the end. Now, this is the great epistle of hope. Why? We've already seen, should the child of God be willing to endure trials? Because we've got a hope, friends. And that hope rests in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, at the time that the Lord Jesus comes to take the church out of the world, there's a judgment. It's called the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema judgment. And it will be to see whether you're going to need a reward or not. Now, every believer will be taken out because of the grace of God. He's going to bring plenty of grace with him. And he's going to bring plenty of grace with him because of the fact that at that time he's going to judge us. And we're going to need grace at that time, let me tell you. By the way, another wonderful thing is the Scriptures also are going to lead us, if you please, to obedience here. Why? Because of the fact you and I are going to be judged someday. This is another incentive to endure the trials of this world because of the fact that he's going to judge us someday. How we've lived down here, that's very important. And the challenge is this writer that I quoted says, it's a challenge to live differently. And because of the salvation which we are called upon today, believers in Christ are confronted with a demand to live transformed lives that only the Word of God can produce in us. And one of the reasons he lets us go through these trials and troubles down here is because he wants to fashion us and we're to yield to these troubles. Verse 14, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Now, we need to recognize down here that the Scriptures also lead to obedience. That's what James says. Don't be hearers of the Word only. Be doers of the Word. And therefore, the Word of God brings us hope, and it leads us to obedience, and we're not to fashion our lives according to the world. And that word fashion has in it the thought of that which is temporary, that which is passing, that which is transient, that which is superficial. We are to live a life that reveals that we've been transformed from the inside. We're not to walk around today like the flow walker at Macy's with an artificial smile on our face saying, Madam, can I help you? When reality, the corns are killing the poor fellow, and he'll be glad when the store closes and he can go home. But he acts like he's delighted to help you. God doesn't want his children to live artificial lives like that, or like the full of brush man. He always comes to my house with a big smile on his face. And I don't know, maybe his mother-in-law has come to visit him from Iowa, and he's not too happy about it, but he sure doesn't let on. But the child of God is be an obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the form of lusts in your ignorance. And the Word of God 
you see, is to be obeyed, and we're to yield to that sort of thing. When I was sick, I received again some very wonderful poems, one that was sent to me when I had cancer, and it was a great comfort, and I've received several copies of it now since I've been sick again. And I want to pass it on to you because I have experienced this now. I didn't the first time, maybe, but I sure have this time. Will you listen to this? It is Alice Mortensen's poem. I needed the quiet, so he drew me aside into the shadows where we could confide away from the bustle for all the day long I hurried and worried when active and strong. I needed the quiet, though at first I rebelled, but gently, so gently my cross he upheld and whispered so sweetly of spiritual things, though weakened in body, my spirit took wings to heights never dreamed of when active and gay He loved me so greatly, he drew me away. I needed the quiet, no prison my bed, but a beautiful valley of blessings instead, a place to grow richer, in Jesus to hide. I needed the quiet, so he drew me aside. How? That I might spend time in the Word of God, friends. How important that is today. Now, will you notice... Verse 15, "...but as he who hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of life." Now, here is something that is really misunderstood. Holiness today to the average person means assuming a very pious attitude, means to go around in a very dignified way and to become almost abnormal in the life that you leave. It's a sort of a put-on thing. It's a superficial sort of thing. Do you know that the Lord wants you to be a fully integrated personality? He wants you to enjoy life. He wants you to have fun. There are too many Christians that are not having fun today. And I don't mean the kind of fun in the world, but I mean today a holy life. A holy life means a well-integrated life well-integrated personality, one that's living a normal life, one that's healthy and robust. And holiness, will you listen to this very carefully now, holiness is to the spiritual life what health is to the physical life. Now, you like to see a fine, robust, healthy individual physically. Well, holiness means you're healthy and robust spiritually. My, how we need folk like that today. And that's what he's talking about here. Now, listen to him. Because it's written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, is our holiness like God's holiness as an attribute? No. Our God is absolutely perfect. We'll never reach that state down here, although I've met several people who thought they had reached it. But I couldn't find anybody that would agree with them that they had reached that exalted level. What does it mean to be holy as he is? Well, God is a complete, wonderful personality. Now, you and I are just human beings, but we can be full-grown. We can reach maturation. And as we've said before, 
It's all right to be a little baby in a crib and win a blue ribbon. But 17 years later, and you're still a baby in a crib, something's wrong. You ought to be a 17-year-old young fella, you know, healthy, running around. And spiritually, you ought to be growing like that. Now, that's the thing that he's talking about here. What can produce this? The Word of God. Now, we want to begin at verse 17. Now, this is a very important epistle, as I'm sure that you've discovered. We're in this section where the theme is suffering and the Scriptures, that the Word of God ministers to you in your life and that there's no other way, as we've seen, for God to take the dross out of your life any more than you could take the dross out of gold except by putting it in the crucible and heating it red hot. And then it's melted, and the dross can be taken off, and it'll be a fine object. I had the privilege of seeing the crown jewels in the Tower of London, and the beautiful gold crown there set with diamonds. As I looked at it, I thought, well, that gold had come out of the ground. It was just ore. And my, what it had been through before it can be in a crown and be there to thrill the tourists that came by and took a look at it. Now, God put you and me through that. And that's the only way he can develop us. Now, this idea today that there's some little shortcut, and you can take some little course, and you're going to become some wonderful Christian. Now, I'm here to say something very unpopular again, but it must be repeated. Somebody needs to say it. The only way for God to fashion you and me is to put us on the anvil of life and bring us to a red-hot heat and then to beat us into the shape that he wants us in. That's his method and he says that he uses it. He doesn't apologize for it. And he never asked me to apologize for him, so I won't apologize for him. I just say that's his method today. And we have too many phony, so-called spiritual folk that feel like they're adequate today. And they're as phony as a $3 bill. They don't know what it is to suffer. They don't know what it is to endure pain. And yet they feel like that they're living Christian life at the very top. My friend, God's method is to put you in the crucible of life. Now, will you listen to him here as he continues to speak about these things that have to do with the nitty-gritty things of life? And he says, "...and if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons..." And here again, Paul has said it. James has said it. Now Peter says it. That God doesn't respect persons. None of us are God's little pets. That he's going to keep a nursing bottle in our mouths all the time and burping us all the time. Listen to him. And if ye call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, my friend, in view of the fact that God's going to judge your work as a Christian. This hasn't anything to do with your salvation. It has something to do with your Christian life. Down here where you're living it. Now, in view of the fact that, I tell you, it ought to cause some of us to become very sober-minded and to 
give a little more attention to the life that we are living today and make sure that we're not superficial, that this smile that we have on our face all the time and that we're tempting to produce joy and radiate happiness and sunshine everywhere that we go. My friends, the gospel is not sprinkling rose water on a bunch of dead weeds. The gospel today transforms lives and brings life to you. As we have seen, we have a living hope that rests upon the resurrection of Christ, which means he's alive up yonder today at God's right hand. Now he goes on to say in verse 18, "...for as much as ye know..." I hope you know this today, "...that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain manner of life received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish." and without spot. Now, he's talking here actually about the objective work of God for your salvation, and that is the redemption. And he had to pay a price for you. You see, you and I stood under the judgment of God, and the soul that sinneth it shall die. And God hasn't changed that. That has never been revoked. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the immutability of God is the terror of the wicked, if they give any thought to it at all. God doesn't change. It's nice to say that we're living in a new age, and we have new thoughts and new ways and that sort of thing. My friend, God has not changed. No reason for him to change. He knew the end from the beginning. Why did he need to change? He doesn't. And he didn't learn anything when he read the morning paper and looked at the television newscaster this morning. Didn't tell him a thing. And there was no surprise. God has no surprises. Now, we've been redeemed. And how we're redeemed? Not with corruptible things like silver and gold. Now, silver and gold can be purified by being put in the crucible. Heated red hot and the dross can be drawn off. But may I say to you, even gold and silver will corrupt. Now, if you have any silver at home that you use on your table, you only get it out when you have visitors. And you know, every time you get it out, it's corroded. It's dull. looks like pewter. Why? It's corrupting. Silver will corrupt. Gold will corrupt. Therefore, we're not redeemed with corruptible things. And anything that's taken from our vain manner of life, there's nothing in this life. This life is empty, friends, without the redemption of Christ. It's meaningless without it. There's nothing quite as meaningless as human life apart from the redemption of Christ. Everything else serves a purpose that's in this world. Every animal is here because it serves a purpose. Every plant is here serves a purpose. The sun in the sky serves a purpose. Man without God is meaningless. He's garbage. Someone has said that we're merely a little 
breaking out on the epidermis of a minor planet. That's all in the world that mankind is apart from God. We have not been redeemed with corruptible things or anything from this empty world, an empty life. Mankind hasn't anything to offer to God today. My friend, what do you have that God wants and needs? One of the things I learned being put aside, man, I thought the conferences I had up in the Northwest and the services that I was to conduct, my, I thought they were important. God put me flat on my back and he said, listen, he said, you know, I got along without you before you got here. And the interesting thing is, I'm going to get along without you after you leave here. Now, you think these things are important, but I want you to know that what is important, I want you to lie here flat on your back, look up at me, and find out that your relationship with me is the most important thing that there is. And I want to teach you a few things. I want you to find out that you need to rest in me and that you can trust me. And you teach the Word of God, and sometimes you're teaching way out ahead of where you've been living. Now I want you to sort of catch up. And I want you to find out that what I say in my words true, and that a little suffering not going to hurt you at all. It's going to mold you and shape you. May I say to you, we've been redeemed, not with these empty things in this world. What can you and I do today to redeem ourselves? Verse 19, but we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And here goes Simon Peter again, that great big fisherman. He says the blood of Christ is precious. And when my book on the tabernacle was reviewed, it was reviewed by a denominational journal, and the reviewer was very kind and fair, I thought. He said that we recommend that all the pastors of our denomination get this book on the tabernacle find it helpful. But beware, this man treats everything literal. He thinks the blood of Christ is up yonder in heaven today. And he says, that's rather crude. Well, may I say to you, I don't know how you feel about it, but I don't think it's crude because Simon Peter here by the Spirit of God, and he's a great big rough fisherman, he says it's precious. And as we said before, that's a ladylike word. That's girl talk. Anything's precious. But his blood's precious, my friend. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Simon Peter was with him three years, and he says he was without blemish and without spot. And I rather think that he knew more about it because all that he got for following him was a cross, and he was crucified. And I'd rather believe him than the writers of Jesus Christ Superstar because they admit the only reason they wrote it was to make money. Simon Peter wasn't in the money-making business because he said we haven't been redeemed with corruptible things, silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, that's our redemption. That's objective. That's what God did for you and me who verily was foreordained. And here we go again with this long definition that we have in the New Schofield Bible. And may I say to you that the better word here is 
foreknown rather than foreordained. But you have here really a tremendous statement in the Schofield Reference Bible. But when I begin to deal with these words that we have like foreordination, election, predestination, foreknowledge, and all of that sort of thing, I feel like that man today, because we have a finite mind, we treat God like he's a great big computer. And I don't think he's that at all. He's got a heart bigger than any computer. And I'm not really concerned whether foreknowledge comes before foreordination. Now, I studied all that in theology and did pretty well in it. And very frankly, I since then have just not been concerned with which comes first. The important thing is this, who verily was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And if you want it in good old Americana, the cross of Christ was not an ambulance sent to a wreck. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And God knew all the time that Vernon McGee would need a Savior. And he loved him enough to provide that Savior. And I don't know about you, I don't need a computer to go over this. I just need a God with a great big heart of love that provided by his grace a redemption. This is wonderful. Now, will you notice, "...who by him do believe in God who raised him up from the dead." Simon Peter just can't get us away from the resurrection. "...and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God." Before he put grace in hope, and now it's faith and hope. This is the great apostle of hope, and hope rests upon the resurrection of Christ, the fact we have a living Savior, and he's coming someday. Now listen to him. "...seeing that ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit." The Word of God, friends, is a miracle cleansing agency. On television today, they show you their competitor's product, and it won't take all the spot out, but theirs takes the spot out. It may be a spot on a shirt or a pair of breeches or socks, or a tablecloth, or what have you, or maybe on the floor that you're not really using the right wax there. They all got some miracle product today. My friend, the only miracle cleansing agency in this world today is the Word of God. It's the best bar of soap that you can get, and it's lots better than zest. It's lots better today than getting a box of Tide or a bottle of joy. This will take the spots out, the Word of God today, and many of us need to get closer to it. And he says, "...unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently." Now, I won't go into detail there other than to say that your relationship to the Word of God will lead to a right relationship with other believers, by the way. Now, let's move on. Verse 23, "...being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever." Now, we're back to the word of God again. Now, we're going to talk about the subjective work of God in salvation. The objective work, Christ died, that's our redemption. 
That happened 1,900 years ago, and you can't add anything to it. But if you're going to become a child of God, you'll have to be born again. You will have to be born from above. This is what the Lord Jesus, you remember, said to Nicodemus that night, and he was religious to his fingertips. He said to him, you must be born again. You must be born anathen from above by the Spirit of God. Now, what does God use? Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now, let me say this, and I want to say it very carefully. You cannot be saved. You cannot be born again apart from the Word of God. This is the miracle that's in the world today, is this book. And you know, I never cease to marvel, though, when I get letters, and I just can't read them all to you, about people who just listen to this little weak broadcast that we have. And their lives are transformed. They're born again. And I say, my, isn't that wonderful? Don't see how it happened. Well, this is what he said, that the Word of God, it liveth and abideth forever. Now, we're living in a day when a great deal is said about virility. A man that's uh, vigorous and virile, and a woman that is sexy. And my, there's a big emphasis that's put on that today. I want to tell you about the thing that's more virile and vigorous than anything else, and I hope you don't misunderstand. It's sexy. It's the Word of God. It is something that, my friend, you can put your arms around the Savior that's presented here. You can trust Him, and a birth takes place, a miraculous birth a virile and vigorous, that the Word of God today can penetrate your heart, make you a child of God. My friend, this is something today that's important in all of this running around with an emphasis on sex and virility and sexy. I think that we're becoming paranoid today, the human race is. You'd think this generation discovered sex my friend, that which will really bring a birth in your life is the Word of God as it reveals Christ to you. And then something takes place on the inside of you. You're born again. For all flesh is like grass. Don't think that there's something in us. There's nothing. And all the glory of man like the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and its flower falleth away. Man is just like the grass out there. It looks nice and green in the summertime, but it's very dead in the wintertime. It won't peer but for just a little while. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. My friends, may I say today, we need the preaching and teaching of the word of God above everything else. And I do not mean to minimize the place of music and the place of methods and the place of organization and the place of many other things, but there's no substitute for the Word of God today.